From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. It's Friday, and it's time for the North Carolina News Roundup. On today's panel, Monica Casey, Durham reporter for WRAL. Caitlin Bird, senior politics reporter, The Post and Courier out of South Carolina. Colin Campbell, WUNC's Capitol Bureau Chief, and Gary Robertson, State House reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, it's Super Bowl weekend on the field and in state politics. It's time now for some sound from the week. For President Biden, it's bad news. Meredith College's latest poll shows him down five points in North Carolina if he faces President Trump again in the general election. The latest domino falling last night, DPS Superintendent Pascal Mubenga submitting his resignation amidst the weeks-long dispute over pay for school staffers. These people don't know how much money they're taking home. You cannot plan for any of your bills if you don't know how much money you have. None of these candidates, that is who technically won the Republican primary in Nevada last night with former Governor Nikki Haley coming in a distant second place despite Trump not even being on the ballot. Wow, what a week. Well, some big news coming out of Durham Public Schools this week especially. First of all, there's no school today. The district calls it kind of a teacher work day. But the fact is, so many teachers and staff, probably even bus drivers, called in and said they're not showing up today. And the district, you know, had to shut down. So Monica Casey is here with us. I'm the Durham reporter for WRAL, and she's covered the debacle at Durham Public Schools for a while now. Well, Monica, first of all, I have to ask you what's going on, first of all. But all of Durham's public schools, they're closed just a day or so after it was announced that Superintendent Pascal Mubanga had stepped down. So here's a little bit of what Mubanga had to say after his resignation. I'm not saying that I'm taking a fall because uh, once the board attorney, that's where do the investigation, they're going to release the report. There's nothing that uh, I did wrong. Whatever decision that came out, it was pretty much a mutual between the board and myself, so I'm not going to call it a fall. So it's just the right time for me to walk away. Well, Monica, what do you think about that? That was a surprise to a lot of us because earlier that day, two different groups had come out in support of former Superintendent Mubanga, encouraging the school board not to fire him, discouraging what they called hasty action. And about five hours later, we had his resignation letter on the table. Well, the pressure came from somewhere. It did. And it was mutual. And so he's getting a $297,000 payout as of today, actually, on that. Wow. Would you like all that pressure in that job? <laughs> I mean, at, at least you get that payout, right? Yes. Like, I mean, if I ask my bosses now, like, you know, if I, if I screw something up on the air and make a big mistake and I have to quit, y'all are going to pay me for the rest of the year, right? And, and maybe if you could just go ahead no. and write that check today. No, we're not going to yeah. pay you for the rest of the year. But Monica... Tell me some of the folks maybe you've spoken with um, lately. I know parents, staff, they're not surprised probably about all of this right now, but they're really upset, I would expect. I think so. And, you know, we've covered these school closures multiple times. Today, all of the schools in Durham are closed because transportation support staff chose to not come in. That was announced late last night, maybe around 8 o'clock or so. 
And this is the third closure we've seen. Seven schools were closed earlier this week, impacting about 5,000 students. Twelve schools closed last week, impacting more than 10,000. So for some of these students, this is their second day off this week. And you would think families would be upset about that, but I think it's important to note how much support the classified staff are getting from parents. There's, of course, people who say, I want my child to go to school as much as possible, but we've seen parents on the picket line with their children who weren't in school that day there to show the classified staff support. So this is really an issue that the whole community has kind of come around. Yeah, well, we've all lived through a pandemic. We were forced to teach take care of our kids when they couldn't go to school. So this is just a thing for them probably, but still very stressful. Maybe you can explain um, quickly again for the listeners why why we are here. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something, another big piece of news this week is that we got the report that shows kind of how we got here. It's a long timeline, but in fall of 2022, the school board agreed to do this study on the salaries for classified staff. And that group includes instructional assistants, occupational therapists, uh, transportation staff, building services. It, it's thousands of employees that were included. And in January of last year, 2023, the consultant said, okay, we think these raises might cost about $10.8 million. The next month, it's the CFO, Paul Lasor, started making the budget. He asked uh, his budget analysts to run the numbers on how much the raises would cost, and they came up with a number much closer to $23 million. He said, OK, run, run the numbers again, but take away the outside years of service and let's just count the state years of service. That's when they came up with a number much closer to $10 million, and that's the number they worked off of for the rest of the time. So checks started going out in October. And by November, the CFO alerted the superintendent, we have a problem. These raises are going to be $12 million over what we budgeted for. Well, some would say that's crazy, but I want you to hold that thought, and we're going to get back to that topic. We'll be right back with more from our North Carolina News Roundup panel. You're listening to Do South. Back on Due South with the North Carolina News Roundup, I'm Leonita Inge, and I'm here with this great panel, Monica Casey, Durham reporter for WRAL, Caitlin Bird, our senior politics reporter with The Post and Courier out of Charleston, South Carolina, Colin Campbell, WUNC Capitol Bureau Chief, and Gary Robertson, State House reporter from the Associated Press. I'm going to go back to Monica, who was telling us about how Durham Public Schools kind of got in its current, I don't want to call it mess, but it sounds like a mess. The way you were talking about how the numbers were being calculated and then added and retracted and years of service were added and retracted. Fill us in some more. 
It's pretty confusing, but what it all comes down to is a lack of communication between finance and HR about how much raises will cost, how raises are being calculated, and what years of service are going to count. That report showed us that the superintendent knew of this in November, that there were problems. He told two school board members, Bettina Umstead, the chair, and Natalie Byer in December and said they'd figure it out after the holidays. And then on January 11th, he told the entire board and emails went out to employees January 12th. And that's how we got here. It's got to be a very stressful time. So now you, well, school is out today. You have probably upset parents, upset staff, and you have a superintendent, a superintendent who stepped down. And now you have a new interim superintendent who's already been named. Um, tell us about her. That was quick. Uh, they, Very quick. They did. They they first named a deputy superintendent to fill in Dr. Nicholas King. He had about a day on the job. And then they named former Wake County Superintendent Caddy Moore. She was with Wake County from 2018 to 2023. She's been in public education for 35 years. So she's a name we've heard a lot in the triangle. Um, and she's the new interim in Durham. She's certainly inheriting a lot to work on. Well, um, I think we've had enough about Durham Public Schools right now because it's like, what are we, what are we going to do but follow and track this probably every day for a while until we get to the bottom of what's going on and hopefully they get everything back on track. You know, a long way from resolved. So I've a long way from mm-hmm. resolved. I was trying to think back, you know, when my kids were in Durham Public Schools, did we have anything comparable to this happening? Only thing I can think of was. My youngest son at Jordan High School, I think there was a new principal, I felt, every year, you know, during his time there. But still, a great principal eventually came, and she's still there. You know, so I can't think of anything like this. So thank you very much, Monica. What were we going to say? Well, I'm I'm just saying I'm sure as parents, we want our children to have stability in their school systems. And that's what everybody ultimately wants. Definitely. Well, I'm going to move along and talk about something that's actually very, also very heartening. You know, tomorrow, February 10th, marks the ninth anniversary of the brutal deaths of three Muslim American students in Chapel Hill. Um, A new documentary is being screened actually across the Triangle and in Charlotte during the next, um, during the next week. And this documentary is titled 36 Seconds Portrait of a Hate Crime. So reports say it took only 36 seconds for a Chapel Hill man to shoot and kill Dia Barakat, 23, his wife, Yusur Abu Salha, 21, and her sister, 19-year-old Razan Abu Salha. Thirty-six seconds. That's how long it took to shatter our lives forever. It's a level of malice that I have not seen before. There are still many more questions than answers about what happened here last night. They were just three innocent souls. Police say this may have simply been a fight over parking spaces. Three children murdered over a parking dispute? Does that make any sense to anyone? Well, you may remember the vigils... Um, the protests, you know, demanding that this um, this murder, these murders be like officially called a felony hate crime. But, you know, that never happened here. And Craig Hicks is serving three life sentences for those murders um, 
right now. Do you remember that time? It, nine years ago, it almost seems like really it happened just a few years ago. Uh, there was a it was a national international, international. incident where um, people just could not believe something like that would happen in central North Carolina, and just a lot of hand wringing, justifiably over what how that happened, and uh, certainly a, a great deal of. Uh, media attention brought to to light just the concerns that uh, Muslim Americans who live in North Carolina face, and um, the you know fears that um, of violence. I know I spoke briefly with um, the DA from Durham, and she said that um, if most cities and towns, she says most cities and towns don't even track hate crimes. First of all. And she says they don't track them because they don't care, because they don't want to. And that left me with definitely something to think about because we don't have a felony, as far as I know, felony hate crime law, you know, on the books. On the books in North Carolina. Colin, have you heard of anything like that? You know, there hasn't really been much of a push to create one. uh, And even in the wake of this and, you know, a number of other uh, high-profile crimes that have happened over the years. We just haven't seen an effort, uh, enough momentum at the legislature to sort of crack down on this and try to make a, a better effort to to go after hate crimes in North Carolina. I know that State Senator Jay Chowdhury has been trying. It just hasn't been moving. And actually, he'll be on a panel that I'm moderating Monday at the Carolina Theater in Durham, where it's one of the places where they're showing um, the film and Durham District Attorney Satana DeBerry will be there, and Nitha Alam will be there, and of course, um, the state senator, um, Childridge, that I just mentioned, you know, just kind of backtracking on what happened, what could have been done better, and, you know, I guess how to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, like maybe there does need to be something strong on the books to deter um, hate crimes like this. And just a better attempt as a society, I think, to see people of different uh, faith backgrounds and ethnicities as humid. I think that's seemed to be a problem with, with this one. And one of the things I think we can sort of take away from this and, and remember as we look back on this crime is just the, the what these three accomplished in their short lives. I mean, they were sort of like rock star so humanitarians. Yeah. And uh, I saw um, Durham County Commissioner Nita Alam, who's on that panel you mentioned, uh, apparently knew it was friends with these three. Yes. And she was put a post to remembrance uh, online this week talking about what they could have accomplished had they been here for the last mm-hmm. nine years. Well, they've definitely, people have almost lived through them, you know, their their parents, their families. I mean, they've reached across the, the globe in um, trying to take care of um, communities with their knowledge and their friends' knowledge because um, definitely one of those slain um, was in dental school, you know, at UNC Chapel Hill. And so that was a dream to be able to offer those services, you know, worldwide. Well, I'm going to move on to South Carolina. We have Caitlin Bird with us, a senior politics reporter at the Post and Courier in Charleston. How are you doing, Caitlin? I am doing well. How are you doing? Fine. How's our girl Nikki Haley doing? That's what She is not doing so well. <laughs> she is not doing very well. It's been a, a very bad, not so good week for Nikki Haley. It has not been a great day in South Carolina, and more specifically in Nevada, for Nikki Haley. 
uh, Nikki Haley has been wanting to have quote unquote strong finishes in the states where she's been competing. Um, and no matter which way you slice it, the largely symbolic but still existing Republican primary in Nevada earlier this week, it was nothing short of an embarrassment for Nikki Haley. She lost to the option, none of these candidates. And that's the first time that any presidential candidate from either party has lost a race since uh, since that particular option was introduced in Nevada in 1975. Not exactly the history-making streak that, that Haley wanted to have in this contest. Well, she's definitely holding on, and we know why. She She wants to you know, see what her state does for her. If there's support in South Carolina, you know, I think that Republican primary is coming up fast in the next couple of Saturdays. And um, so she will, um, I guess she will get her dream because some have said, you know, of course she should have dropped out a long time ago, but she's trying to go home now. Yeah, she has repeatedly said she wanted to have a head-to-head contest in her quote-unquote, sweet home state of South Carolina. And she has also been forecasting, particularly in the last couple of weeks, about the importance of Super Tuesday. So she will be making mm. the case, most likely, in North Carolina really? as well to you guys. And I, and I should say that I am a native North Carolinian, so I can wear both hats in this conversation, but I now live in Charleston. So, um, yeah, Haley is is looking to really double down on her efforts here in South Carolina. And I should say that, just for a point of clarification with Nevada, that she had not been spending very much time there. Her campaign had been suggesting that they would only focus on the states that were quote-unquote fair and that it would be full steam ahead for South Carolina. So she is kicking off a bus tour. The classic campaign bus tour is coming to South Carolina, um, and she is going to kick that off on Saturday. And that is significant because that's two days before early voting opens for the Republican presidential primary here in South Carolina. And it will also be the first time that both Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are going to be campaigning in South Carolina this calendar year. So we're going to have our first real opportunity for a split screen here in the state as Nikki Haley's campaigning in the middle part of the state, which we call the Midlands. And Donald Trump is going to be coming to the Myrtle Beach area, which is a very very friendly territory for him. Mm. Well, she's been wanting that. Gary, you surprised that she's going to try to hold out, you know, even for Super Tuesday? I thought, I don't know. Well, I think there is a argument to be made that if Donald Trump's legal troubles continue, she's in the background with a, 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 a significant minority of delegates that might help her win the nomination if he is unavailable. But Again, is the party that Nikki Haley wants to represent, is that part of the really national Republican picture now? Or is it more a just a Trump-dominated party and they may not even want Nikki Haley to be the nominee, even if she's the only person with a significant number of delegates? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if she fares poorly in South Carolina, if that didn't end up being sort of the nail in the coffin for her campaign. Super Tuesday is going to require a lot of uh, fundraising and money to get around to all these states, including North Carolina, uh, where I don't think she's been this cycle yet. Um, 
If she's still in, you'll probably see some of her after the South Carolina primary. But the numbers in North Carolina so far really don't look favorable to her. There was a Meredith College poll that came out this week uh, with Donald Trump getting 72 percent of support in the Republican primary here in North Carolina, just 20 percent for Nikki Haley. And notable to me, because this shows you how few undecided voters there are at this stage of the game, only 4 percent of the people polled said they don't know who they're going to vote for yet. So there's not a whole lot of people for them to decide, (laughs) for for Nikki Nikki Haley to convince that uh, she's the best candidate it and they're not sure yet. Uh, most people have made up their minds. Uh, uh, Caitlin, this is right. Gary. This is Gary Robertson again. How would you describe if you take out President Trump from the South mm-hmm. Carolina equation, would you say that uh, Governor Haley still has a strong support if if Trump is not part of the picture or has her um, has her popularity waned in recent years? I, I think that's a great question, and and I think her popularity has waned here in recent years, and and it's really difficult to remove Trump from the equation because the magnification of the Republican Party is just a reality that I can't even imagine what the Republican Party would look like without him right now. And so much is seen as being either are you for Trump or against Trump. We've seen that be the ultimate GOP loyalty and litmus test in Republican primaries and even in general elections uh, throughout the country, and particularly in the Southeast where we live. So it's um, it's fair to say that, you know, Trump really does want to do her in in her home state. Um, the fact that he's coming campaign here shows that he's looking to not kind of stay on cruise control, even though polling, which has unfortunately been pretty scant in the Palmetto state, shows that she is still losing by a significant double digit margin. And I don't know how. Nikki Haley at this point in the contest with her eyes on Super Tuesday, how you can continue to convince donors to keep putting money toward you when so far her quote-unquote winning strategy has been to be consistently coming up in short. I don't know how you have a winning strategy when it's been predicating on losing consistently. It's just that's a really tough sell. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. You want to win elections, and she has not been winning her elections in state after state, and then it goes to multi-state contest where you do have to have those big time resources because it's no longer a one state at a time strategy. So I do think her popularity here is waned. I think we see that even particularly in the endorsements. We know that endorsements sometimes are not necessarily things that move the needles for voters here, but it is telling that only one congressional member in the state is standing with Nikki Haley, and that's Ralph Norman. And that's largely due to a longtime friendship between the two. It's not necessarily a political alignment. So, well, Caitlin, we're going to come. She's got a hard road ahead. We're going to come back to you to talk more about Nikki Haley. So stay tuned for more from the North Carolina News Roundup. This is Due South. Thanks for joining us on Due South with the North Carolina News Roundup. I'm Leonita Inge, and I'm here with the panel of North and South Carolina journalists, Monica Casey, Durham reporter for WRAL, Caitlin Byrd, a senior politics reporter with the Post and Courier out of Charleston, Colin Campbell, WUNC Capitol Bureau Chief, and Gary Robertson, State House reporter, the Associated Press. You know, before we move on, Caitlin, I wanted to ask you, what did you think about Nikki Haley's bit skit on Saturday Night Live? Why won't you debate Nikki Haley? Oh, Nikki, don't do this, Nikki. <laughs> Nikki Tiki Tavi. Nikki, don't lose that number. Nikki Haley, Joel Osment. Nikki Haley, Joel Osment, we call her. Six cents, remember that one? I see dead people. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's what voters will say if they see you and Joe on the ballot. Oh, that's not very nice, Nikki. I have to give the campaign a bit of credit for keeping something that big under big wraps. Secret. Yes. We we had just finished tallying up and watching, you know, I should say reporting on the results of, of Biden's blowout Democratic win here that Saturday night. And so I'm slugging home and turn on the TV mm. and who should I see but Nikki Haley. Uh, <laughs> I definitely fired off a text to a certain campaign member going, you guys seriously kept this a secret? So, um, you know, that may have been one of the best opportunities for, for Nikki Haley to to sort of try to make her case to a national audience in a way that wasn't a, a 30 second soundbite kind of TV ad. So um, it was fun. It was playful. But do I think it will actually goad Donald Trump onto a debate stage anytime soon? Probably not. Mm. And I guess my last question for you about the former governor of South Carolina, she's been asking for um, some special help with security. She wants Secret Service um, to follow her around now. Is that needed, you think? Well, I I hate to say it, but I I do think it's become something that's very standard. I mean, even if you look through FEC reports for Senator Tim Scott, I mean, he has secured at every event. This is something that's become as much of a staple as a campaign sticker um, in these times to, to have some sort of security detail around you. And at this point in the contest, you know, it is getting kind of spicy. You know, once it's a head-to-head, it's very clear that you see the us versus them narrative really start to play out in our politics once it's a two-person race, even if it's on the same side of the aisle. So unfortunately, I do think it's a reflection of just how seriously and maybe um, too seriously we take our politics these days that we have to consider these types of security measures. But I, I do think it is just par for the course at this point. Well, thank you for filling us in. Um, on Nikki Haley and her run for President of the United States. Now, back to North Carolina. I know, Colin and Gary, you've both been following primary races, especially for governor. And, Gary, you recently interviewed Mike Morgan, a Democrat, and Dale Falwell, a Republican. I guess neither one is real close to the front runner, to be front runners of um, their party's nomination right now. But um, tell me about these two gentlemen. Well, they both think they have something to offer their respective parties and to kind of present an alternative to what appears to be the presumptive front runners. We have Dale Falwell, the state treasurer who has a long history in local and state government. He sees himself as a fixer and somebody who uh, can run government efficiently, and he doesn't believe that uh, be the case with the lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson, who's the front runner. But again, Uh, he is, you know, he doesn't have the same amount of money necessarily. He has loaned his campaign some money, I think, for Mm -hmm. the final weeks to get on the air. Mike Morgan, uh, who is uh, whose rival is Attorney General Josh Stein in the Democratic primary, an associate justice of the state Supreme Court until recently. um, He, um, you know, he presents um, a traditional Democratic view on a lot of issues, and he feels like that. He's also somebody who has experience in state government. Again, Josh Stein does as well, but has had some criticisms of Stein for, in his you know in his view, has not really provided details and answered uh, questions on specific issues. I'm sure the Stein campaign feels differently. Uh, again, he is at a, a significant disadvantage financially, but uh, you know hope springs eternal for a lot of candidates. Uh, this time of year, and we'll see whether he can 
uh, pull off what would be a major upset. Yeah, I talked to Dale Falwell this week as well, and he, you know, he's I think behind, pretty far behind in most of the polls we've seen to, to Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor, and even to Salisbury attorney Bill Graham, who's the other uh, Republican candidate. Uh, but he argues that he's out there on the campaign trail. There's a lot of people still undecided, uh, and then when they have these little straw polls of the people who show up to hear a speech, that most people are going for him because he's basically going on the warpath, attacking Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, as has the Graham campaign. So Robinson's taking a hit over a variety of the comments he's made about women, about the Holocaust cost about uh, a number of different things that both of these uh, other Republicans are pretty consistently bringing up at every opportunity. Well, I've been I put out a request a while ago. I want Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson sitting in this chair right here where you are. Again, I've been wanting to interview him a long time, but I don't think he he doesn't really do many interviews. Yeah, I mean, regardless of the news outlet, you really don't see much of him on on TV or radio. Well, you know, something else I wanted to ask you, Colin, um, a big announcement this week. Josh Stein, um, along with the Biden administration. You know, when I hear about this multi-million dollar settlement, you know, they won from First National Bank for something. I just didn't think I would hear that term this, not, I can't say this century, but this generation, but redlining. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was surprised oh to see that too. I mean, we hear about that when we hear about like the civil rights movement and the redlining that occurred for the you know first half or so of the 20th century, essentially where the, the term comes from basically drawing a red line on a map around uh, what typically was a saying, low-income black neighborhood. Here. Yeah, or you can't get a loan here, so you're not going to be a homeowner if you live in right. this low-income black neighborhood. You're going to be stuck renting the rest of your life. Um, and that's something we thought had gone away, I think. Um, but this bank, uh, First National Bank and its uh, predecessor um, here in North Carolina, uh, apparently there's uh, strong evidence that the uh, Department of Justice found that they have been continuing that practice uh, in Winston-Salem and in Charlotte as recently as like three or four years ago. And you saw it was much, much easier for a white applicant to get a home loan than it would be for a black or a Latino applicant. So they're taking a big financial hit as a result of the settlement uh, that, that occurred after this investigation uh, and pledging to do better in the future. But it just, like you said, it's a shock that that was still occurring, you know, in the very, very recent past of a few years ago and not, you know, in the 60s. I know. I think they said that really First National was four times as likely to approve mortgages for white people than black or Hispanic people in Winston-Salem. It was just that stark. Yeah. And it's just sort of wild that, you know, what what the rationale would even be, you know, in this this day and age to to not approve the, those, those loan applications. And this has been a part of a nationwide push yes. according uh, to uh, media reports that I've seen, you know, that the Biden administration has been really seeking alleged allegations of redlining like this. And I know that one of my colleagues wrote that since he took office, that that the administration had uh, found over $120 million in settlements uh, related to this. Well, that's disturbing. And it's also um, revealing, you know, that it's still going on at that at that level. Now, I'd like to mention a gentleman. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but um, a North Carolina university is mourning the death of one of its former chancellors, Dr. Cleon Thompson, Jr. He served as the chancellor of Winston-Salem State University for a decade. 
He's credited with like revitalizing the institution's school of nursing. But one big note, he was one of the first black students to get a PhD from Duke University. And he lived a great life, 92 years old. So in case you didn't know, Winston-Salem State is one of like 10 historically black colleges and universities in North Carolina. And um, coming up next week, actually Monday, Aisha Roscoe from NPR, she'll be visiting Winston-Salem State because that's where her mother went to school and many family members. And she has this new book out called HBCU Made. So it's a celebration of the black college experience. So um, I, I actually like, and I'm doing series on just really bringing out and celebrating the historically black colleges and universities, not just in the South, but specifically in North Carolina. You know, Winston-Salem State seems like it's sort of the uh, uh, unsung hero of the HBC world, world in North Carolina. It gets overshadowed by North Carolina A&T and NC Central, the bigger schools a lot, but there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, happening at Winston-Salem State for sure. Well, before our time runs out, you know, Monica, Caitlin, Colin, what are you working on for next week? (laughs) Well, I think one thing we're all looking at is the start of early voting. Uh, Early in-person voting starts Thursday, so it'll be interesting to see just the excitement levels, whether people are talking about it. You'll be able to vote um, in all 100 counties at certain locations, and you can also register to vote if you haven't done that yet and vote at the same time. I know that today is Friday is the deadline. If you want to vote in the actual primary day on March 5th, I believe today is the deadline to register. So all that said, the interest and the pressure is uh, um, going up a notch for us journalists, us political journalists to uh, uh, cover head-to-head races. Yeah, so it's definitely a slog to try to get to the end of the primary and cover as many races that are going to be on the ballot as we can get to uh, before we get to March. And one of the ones I'm looking at is the legislative uh, primaries on the Democratic side. There's three or four different races where an incumbent who has a history of voting with Republicans on the state budget, on charter schools, is getting a really strong primary challenge from someone who really doesn't like that they've been voting with Republicans and thinks they should be towing the party line and uh, siding with their fellow Democrats more often. So those are some fascinating races that I'm looking at in the next week or so. And just also looking at those, there are three congressional races where, in districts where currently Democrats are in and have decided not to seek re-election. There are significant Republican primaries in in those races. And why that's important is because redistricting turn those districts very much to the right and those incumbents are not running. So there's a good chance that whoever wins those primaries and uh, District 6, District 13, and District 14, they have a good chance to be in Washington come next January. So we'll be cl- closely looking at those. Well, well, Monica, what about Durham Public Schools? Uh, I think it's safe to say I will definitely be following up on that next week. You know, we have the new superintendent who is starting as of today, and February paychecks are decided that they'll look like those higher paychecks they got in October, but they don't have a long-term solution yet. So we're going to have another board meeting, I believe it's February 22nd, where they'll deal with this. So this is going to remain a big story for us. Well, thank you, Monica Casey, Caitlin Bird. Colin Campbell and Gary Robertson for being here today. And before we go, kudos to a Grammy winner, a North Carolina A&T grad, Natasha Williams, a native of Fayetteville. She won a Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album as a principal vocalist in Some Like It Hot. If you like your simple salty
it was a pleasure having you all with me here today. Wow. My co-host, Jeff DeBerry, he can have this job back. You're listening to Do South. Yeah.